It's Thursday, January 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has officially been in office for one year, and it has definitely been uneasy at best. He started with early successes in passing the COVID relief bill and the vaccine distribution program, but then hit problems with the Delta and Omicron surges, a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, and record high inflation. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief at Politico and host of Way Too Early on MSNBC, joins us for more on Biden's first year. Next, the 5G rollout from Verizon and AT&T has been hit with delays and caused flight cancellations as we hear about worries from the FAA that the 5G frequencies can possibly interfere with radio altimeters that aircraft use to land when visibility is low. Rebecca Heilweil, reporter for Recode by Vox, joins us for more. Finally, we'll tell you about the hypermilers, people who are trying to get as much fuel efficiency out of their vehicles, whether it be gas or electric. Recently, there's been a closer look at electric vehicles, and they found that the sweet spot for making the most of a charge can be very slow, sometimes below 30 miles per hour. Mike Elias, Autos reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the hypermilers. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have faced some of the biggest challenges that we've ever faced in this country these past few years. Challenges to our public health, challenges to our economy. We're getting through. Joining us now is Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief at Politico and host of Way Too Early on MSNBC. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. My pleasure. Let's talk about President Biden one year in. It is the one-year anniversary of when he took office. It's been a lot of up and downs for the president. Uh, the first half of the year, kind of a couple of uh, uh, some momentum with him, some very good marks. And then the second half of his year really devolved into some bad stuff. He's has uh, some of the lowest polling numbers he's had in the whole uh, of his presidency. And there was recently a morning a political morning consult poll About 37% of those surveyed rated Biden's performance as an F. 31% gave him an A and B. That was combined. So not doing too well. But Jonathan, help us walk through this one year of what we've seen so far. Sure. The president, as you said, his year can almost be neatly divided in half with a lot of successes in the first half and challenges in the second half. Let's remember, he took the oath of office a year ago in front of the United States Capitol that still bore the wounds of the insurrection that happened just two weeks prior. And he addressed an empty field, the empty National Mall, because no crowds were allowed because it was the height of the pandemic. And White House aides point to a number of triumphs during that year, and particularly the first few months, the COVID relief bill put almost $2 trillion in the hands of businesses, families, and schools to get them up and running. He distributed, helped distribute the vaccine. So now nearly every American can get their hands on shots and boosters. And he also just tried to take down the temperature in Washington that was so overheated by the tumultuous tenure of Donald Trump. But the White House seemed to have been sort of knocked off course over the summer. It was a one-two punch, the really chaotic initial exit out of Afghanistan, ending the nation's longest war with days of of, of violence. And then the Delta variant caught the White House, they acknowledged, off guard and sent cases skyrocketing throughout the country, deaths and hospitalizations followed. And that sort of put them on a bit of a losing streak that, yes, certainly in the second half of the year, they did pass the bipartisan infrastructure deal. That's, That's a big thing. But we also saw the return of the virus with a vengeance with the Omicron variant. We saw the breakdown of the president's agenda, the voting rights push is going nowhere. 
Uh, the Build Back Better agenda has also stalled and done so. It's been undercut by members of his own party. Inflation has really risen. And as you said, his poll numbers have taken a tumble. You know, when uh, Biden was campaigning, obviously the two top things uh, that he was uh, campaigning on were unity, bringing the country back together, especially after what happened on January 6th and the pandemic. So the pandemic, as you just kind of laid out, right, up and down this roller coaster regulations, people are just tired of it. That's been a really tough one to go. But the unity in the country, too, also just we remain polarized more than ever, really. And, um, you know, we see on the other side of things, former President Trump gearing up for a possible run again, going into the midterms. It's going to be very tough for the president. Yeah, it'd be hard to say the country is more unified now. And to be clear, a lot of that blame should not be placed on Joe Biden. The Republicans have been borderline obstructionist on nearly his entire agenda, except for a handful of senators who supported the infrastructure deal. Only a couple of Republicans were willing to participate in the January 6th Select Committee, trying to probe what happened there that day. You're right, Donald Trump, though off Twitter, is still very much an everyday presence in in the political world and seen as the likely favorite for the GOP nominee in, in nomination in 2024. And the president has some historical headwinds right now. It's just, it, it's sort of typical in American political history that the party that's out of power, that doesn't have the White House, tends to do well in the midterm elections. And right now, the Democrats' margins are so slim. Their advantage of the House is a couple seats, 50-50 tie in the Senate. That bodes well for Republicans this November. Democrats are still very optimistic, right? We're talking about the first year. This is a four-year term. So, you know, we're far from over at this point right now. And, uh, you know, they point to Barack Obama. They point to Bill Clinton, who had uh, tough first years, then went on to re-election. So, uh, obviously, for Democrats, they're going to be optimistic. And, uh, you know, Republicans are going to keep beating that drum that he's not doing a good job. But this is where we're at. Uh, the, the, uh, the midterms are going to be key in shaping the second half of uh, Biden's presidency. Sure. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain spoke to me for a piece I wrote for Politico evaluating the president's first year. And he made the point you did that he acknowledged there have been some challenges in this first year. But he said, look, the president was elected to serve a four year term, not a one year term. And they feel like they've got time to turn this around. And they see some hopeful signs on the horizon. They believe that pieces, at least pieces of the Build Back Better agenda, can still be passed into law at some point this spring or summer, giving Democrats something to run on ahead of the midterms. They believe the Omicron wave is is starting to peak here in the United States, that maybe in a month or two, the virus cases will also start to decline. And they do believe, and they have their fingers crossed, that inflation will also peter out in the months ahead, potentially setting up a series of good news stories for Democrats before voters go to the polls in November. Yeah, I mean, one big key thing holding Democrats back still is kind of the infighting and the division within them, the progressive wing of the party, the moderates, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I mean, have so much power to derail everything, as we've been seeing with the voting rights and the filibuster stuff. So that's another key thing that uh, Democrats are going to have to get under control. Yeah, the Democrats are obviously a big tent party, and there's a lot of very disparate points of view and ideologies within the same party. And on the whole, a lot of Democrats say, hey, President Biden's done a pretty good job keeping us together with a couple notable exceptions. And you just mentioned them. Senators Manchin and Cinema, who have defied the president on voting rights. They won't touch the filibuster, which would be needed in order to enact any sort of meaningful reform. And Manchin in particular has been a roadblock to the Build Back Better agenda as well. Seemingly his demands for it are shifting by the day, much to the frustration of other Democrats and those in the White House. But the president, let's remember, he spent nearly four decades in the Senate. He has great respect for the body. He has 
prizes the relationships with the individual senators. He's going to keep working with them, aides say, and they believe they can still get some part of the agenda done, though likely smaller than he first proposed. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief at Politico and host of Way Too Early on MSNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you again soon. We need the FAA and the FCC to sit in a room to delay this until they sit in a room and find out a way to do this without impacting aviation and aviation customers. Joining us now is Rebecca Heilweil, reporter for Recode by Vox. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what's going on surrounding the airlines and 5G rollout by Verizon and AT&T. They had to delay uh, some of the rollout of their 5G uh, C-band frequency because of concerns that it could affect planes, most notably the Boeing 777 and the radio altimeters. It's uh, something that they use to gauge how close they are to the ground, you know, especially useful in bad weather and things like that. But uh, once again, uh, you know, your cell phone is pitted up against uh, the flying and, uh, you know, it can get a little confusing. I think some airlines already canceled or delayed some flights over this issue. So, Rebecca, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Basically, what happened is that the, uh, is the Federal Aviation Administration, which is the agency that regulates flying throughout the United States, uh, has been expressing concern about this new set of frequencies uh, for 5G, which is called the C-band. And the concern is that, like you said, these could interfere with some safety hardware. And what happened is the FAA issued a bunch of new rules for all sorts of aircraft in order to for when they fly under these uh, new conditions with this new type of 5G. And because of that, all the airlines are scrambling and some are worried that they can't fly um, and will be able to meet the FAA's requirements, which is what's causing all of these cancellations and rescheduling. Tell me a little bit more about how this works with uh, the towers and uh, how close they are to airports and, you know, how much of a, a difference that makes. AT&T and Verizon have been at this for some time, spending $81 billion to buy the rights for this little range of radio spectrum. So, so how does that work? So it's worth noting that the big challenge is that we don't quite know for sure. The problem is, is that these, this hardware altimeter, uh, altimeters are not standardized. So you don't necessarily have the same one on every different type of aircraft because the FAA is not sure um, as to how each one might perform under those new 5G C-band conditions. They've said, we don't want to let any plane fly that might be reliant on that in that certain, in a certain scenario, potentially low visibility, a situation with low visibility until we know that that hardware can work with the C-band. So the concern is not that there is an issue. It's just they want to basically, you know, dot all their I's and cross all their T's on the FAA side to make sure that these devices can still work as normal, even when the C-band is turned on. Uh, so they've been doing some testing, testing out these frequencies to make sure everything works? Yeah. So basically the uh, way forward here is that the FAA working with data collected from the wireless companies as well as the uh, airlines themselves will basically make a determination, altimeter model by model, and say, you know, this one's good to go. And then that clears the aircraft that do use that hardware to fly. So, you know, there were already two models that were approved and that cleared up a lot of commercial aircraft in the U.S. But 
you know, they need to look at every single one. Basically, wow. that's the FAA's position. But there's a path forward here. And I think that's important yeah. to keep in mind. Okay, so they delayed, uh, AT&T and Verizon delayed the rollout near some uh, selected airports that the FAA asked them to, but it didn't stop the rollout of all the 5G towers. And, you know, this is a lot of people were looking uh, very much forward to this as it could increase uh, download speeds and, and uh, you know, a lot of 5G capable devices are already out there on the market. So, I mean, this is a big thing and, and the rollout still is continuing, at least in some parts of the country. Yes, the rollout seems like it's going forward. If you're someone who lives very close to an airport, you might not get the C-band service, same way you might get it in some other places. But it is going forward now. These sort of remaining questions have to do with the air area surrounding airports themselves. What can people expect if you have this five a five G device? They turn it on, you know, turn the towers on in your area. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, faster download speeds. What can people expect to their service to a change in their service? Right now, uh, you know, you might be getting that five G notice on your phone if you have a five G capable device, but that hasn't, for a lot of people, been that different from 4G because they're connecting to what's called low band. Or if it's really, really fast, they happen to be somewhere that has an extremely fast connection called millimeter wave, but that's not super widespread. C-band is supposed to be the 5G frequency that basically makes 5G a lot more common. So like you'll actually feel the difference in your day-to-day life. But it's worth noting there are a couple of caveats. You actually have to have a device that connects to this. It's possible that whether you can connect to this depends on what plan you have with your uh, phone plan. So there should be a difference if you you know you already have those two things. Rebecca Heilweil, reporter for Recode by Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A couple guys went from the tip of the United Kingdom to the southern, the northern to the southern tip uh, to see how far they could get on a single charge. And, and they used one charge, got over 800, 800 miles. So it's, it's kind of like these zany dudes just like <laughs> trying to figure out what they can do to eke more, uh, more electrons out of their EV. Joining us now is Mike Kalias, Autos reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Mike. You bet. Appreciate you having me. Let's talk about the hyper milers. So these are people who are trying to get as much mileage as possible from their fuel in their cars, whether it's gas or electric. This has been done a long time for gas and diesel cars. But, you know, with the rise of electric vehicles, there's a lot of people that are trying to see what the sweet spot is. You know, how much can we get out of a full battery charge? In a lot of cases, uh, sometimes it's got to be really slow, below 30 miles an hour in some cases, if you want to get the most out of an electric charge. So, Mike, tell us a little bit more about the hypermilers. Yeah, I think we were just trying to have a little bit of fun looking at some of these people who like to push a, a new technology or newer technology. EVs have been around for quite some time, but they want to push it to the limits and see how far they can go on a single charge. And really, you know, until a couple of years ago, a lot of these EVs in the market only had, you know, 150, 200 mile ranges. And we're seeing that change. A lot of them are now 300 or even above. And so some of the people we, we talked to for the story, you know, they wanted to see how far they could go. And so some of them on public roads, you know, on highways, you know, a couple guys went from the tip of the United Kingdom to the southern, the northern to the southern tip uh, to see how far they could get on a single charge. And, and they used one charge, got over 800, 
800 miles. So it's, it's kind of like these zany dudes just like <laughs> trying to figure out what they can do to eke more, uh, more electrons out of their EV. As you mentioned, some of these guys did these uh, experiments on tracks. Some of them did them on public roads. And part of it was driving pretty slow. For the electric cars, you know, a lot of this is kind of to take a look at range anxiety, right? Like how long can you go on a charge? So some that's why some of these guys were doing these experiments, let's say. Yeah, I, th- I think that's why you're seeing more of this. Like you said, gas and diesel engines cars we've been you know this has been going on for a long time just in the last year we've seen some of these guinness attempts by some of these guys and really i think it's most of these guys are advocates for the technology right they think that this should be in in broader use and they'd like to show what you can do and the fact that you can get out of town in an ev and taken on a road trip and it's completely viable and a lot of them by the way are sort of underwritten by the car companies you know the car companies just stepped up and, and paid for some of these trips to be able to promote electric vehicles. We're going to see in the next even 18 months, dozens of new models hitting the U.S. There really isn't that much on the market yet. And there's going to be, and the car companies want people to know that these are viable cars that you can both for around town and for road trips. As you mentioned in the article, sometimes the speeds are really slow. In one case, one of these teams that did this, they found that the average speed that was, you know, for that sweet spot was 19 miles per hour. How, why is it so slow for these? Generally speaking, uh, you know, the experts we talked to said the sweet spot for a gas or a diesel engine is going to be in the sort of mid-40s range. And it, it may, it depends on the situation. It depends on the car. But for an EV, it's going to be lower, maybe closer to 30 miles an hour, maybe even, even less. And there's another intricacy, too, with the EV. You can actually get power back into the battery, you know, as you're going downhill, as as you coast or even as as you tap the brakes, that sets the electric motors that drive the car into reverse. And it essentially becomes a generator that generates electricity that goes back into the battery. So the guys who are doing this uh, hypermiling with EVs are conscious of that all the time. And if they're going downhill, they're trying to just brush the brakes a little bit and get as much of that regeneration back as possible because you can get some energy back that you used on the way up the mountainside. It does kind of inform the normal electric vehicle user, you know, when it comes to uh, making long trips. Like I mentioned, the range anxiety. You did mention a, a somebody from Australia who's, you know, making a really long trip, had to kind of reduce those speeds just to get to the next charging station. And I know a lot of Uh, electric vehicle owners when they're planning long trips. You know, that's a huge concern. How much time to get to a charging station and then how much time you're going to actually spend there charging as well. You know, it's going to be a little different if you're planning out a road trip in an electric car. I mean, these ranges have gotten better, but we still have an infrastructure issue. You know, there's not a charging station uh, on every corner like there is gas stations. And so, you know, if you're going on on a road trip in an EV, even if you've got a 300 plus mile range, you're going to want to plot that out and make sure you know where the charging stations are. And and you're right. I mean, you know, these are most of the people that we profiled in our story are are professionals, but there's people who in their everyday situations, whether it's gasoline or electric, are are going to realize at some point, oh man, I don't know if I have enough uh, fuel or enough charge to get to the next the next stop, I better, you know, slow down, (laughs) not go my normal 80 miles an hour and stop blaring the, the air conditioner. Mike Kalias, Autos reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.